Welcome to the Navigating Cancer Together podcast. My name is Talea Dendi. I'm an 11-year cancer thriver, cancer doula, and owner of On the Other Side. I use my experience to help others get on the other side of cancer. Gaps between the guidance, emotional support, and education that are needed and what one receives can be huge. This podcast fills those gaps by sharing stories, resources, and information about all things related to cancer and wellness. I interview guests from all walks of life who are living with cancer, caregivers, and those who are thriving on the other side. Also, I talk with organizations, healthcare professionals, and experts in the health and wellness spaces who offer complimentary and integrative care. Join me. We are in this together. Disclaimer, the purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform. The podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. It is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professionals and is not intended for the use in the diagnosis or treatment of individual conditions. Guests who speak in a podcast express their own opinions, experience, and conclusions. Conclusions. Neither Talea Dendi, Navigating Cancer Together, On the Other Side, LLC, nor any of its affiliates endorses, supports, or opposes any treatment option or other matter discussed in a podcast. The mention of any product, service, organization, activity, or therapy on a podcast should not be construed as an endorsement. Hello, everyone. This is Talea Dendi from OnTheOtherSide.life, and you're listening to the Navigating Cancer Together podcast, the show that has something for everyone facing cancer. Why? Because everyone is different with different needs, beliefs, and perspectives. Thank you for joining us for this episode. I encourage you to open your minds and your hearts. Today, our very special guest is Andrea Wilson-Woods. Andrea is a writer who loves to tell stories and a patient advocate who has founded the nonprofit Blue Fairy, the Adrian Wilson Liver Cancer Association. Andrea is the CEO and co-founder of Cancer University, a for-profit social impact digital health company. Andrea's best-selling and award-winning book, Better Off Bald, A Life in 147 Days, is a medical memoir about raising and losing her sister to liver cancer. Wow, Andrea, thank you so much for all that you do in the community. I am looking forward to the audience hearing your story. Thank you for joining us and welcome. Oh, thank you so much, Talea. You know I love you. Thank you. Right back at you. Love you too, Andrea. <laughs> <laughs> I have been looking forward to talking with you. And your story is just so interesting because at a very young age, you took care of your sister, you were raising your sister. And then unfortunately, that role switched to caregiver for your yep. sister. Please walk us through how Adrian learned that she had cancer. As you mentioned, I got custody of Adrian when she was eight and I was 22. We were living in Los Angeles and I raised her all through my 20s. I came home one day from work. I was actually teaching at the time and she went to high school from seven to two. I typically worked from eight to three. So when I came home, I was used to walking in and seeing her at the kitchen table doing her homework because that was a rule in our house, homework first, except on this day. I walked in and I found her curled up in a fetal position, crying 
and saying that she was in pain. And this was a kid who never cried. So that was alarming. We had no idea what was wrong. And we went to her pediatrician and we just walked in. Now we had seen him two weeks before for what he thought at the time was a pulled shoulder. And he thought we were back because of that. He thought we were just following up. And she said, no, I've got this other pain. I was very fortunate as a parent because Adrian was modest when it came to her clothing. So mm. unlike her friends who were very <laughs> skimpy outfits, she yeah. didn't. And her stomach had been distended for a couple of days and she hadn't shown me or told me about it. And as soon as her pediatrician saw that, he was not happy. He was very worried. I could just see the look on his face that something was terribly wrong. He sent us on to the ER. There's only one hospital in Burbank. And so we go to the ER. And at this point, we don't have any idea. We think there might be internal bleeding. She had been to Coachella just a few weeks before, and I believe it was the first year of Coachella. My boyfriend took her. He's a musician. 12 hours in the desert at a music festival is not my idea of fun. That's but, right. Yeah. <laughs> but it was their idea of fun. Right. Brutal. Yes. <laughs> and we were telling the doctors this, and they thought, okay, maybe it's internal bleeding. John, my, my boyfriend, had complained about bruised ribs. So that's what they were thinking. They got her pain under control. They order a CAT scan. And as she's being wheeled in for the CAT scan, just to give you an idea of her sense of humor, she said, hey, sissy, watch it be cancer. And I just said, oh, bite your tongue. And we just laughed and laughed. And then the ER doctor came in with the results. And I knew from the look on his face, I knew that it was far worse than internal bleeding. And he was not expecting what he saw. And also he would not make eye contact with her. That is something that I tell people pay attention to because that says it all, that mm -hmm. those nonverbal cues tell you a lot. That's right. And he was the one who said she has tumors in her liver and lungs. Didn't say her name. And we burst into tears. That's when he told us that he had ordered an ambulance for Children's Hospital Los Angeles because that hospital was not equipped to handle the situation. Those were his exact words. Wow. And it was because it wasn't a pediatric hospital. They saw adults. And even though she was 15, she was technically a pediatric patient. So by nine o'clock that night, we were in an ambulance on our way over the hill to Children's Hospital where she was admitted. And she was admitted, I remember, to the hemoc ward, the hematology oncology floor. And I was racking my brain. I was such a good student except for science. <laughs> I remember <laughs> racking my brain because I was like, okay, hematology is blood. Yeah. What is oncology? I couldn't remember. Like, what is oncology? Yes. So that was day one of Adrian's cancer journey. And two days later, they did a biopsy and they confirmed that she had stage four liver cancer. Wow. Was Adrian able to go back home? No, she didn't go back home. We spent two weeks in the hospital. A week after that ER doctor told us the news, she was doing her first round of chemotherapy. Once she got through that, they sent us home. The entire cancer journey, for lack of a better word, only lasted 147 days. She endured five and a half rounds of chemotherapy that we ultimately stopped. We were finally able to get her transferred to UCLA where they saw her cancer every day. She had an adult <laughs> type of liver cancer. She had the, actually had the most common type of liver cancer. And at Children's Hospital, they just didn't see cases like hers. But because of our insurance restrictions, it was a challenge to get her transferred to UCLA. But we finally did. And even though we switched chemotherapies and drugs and protocols and everything, it was too late. And so it was was very fast. 
Andrea, were you offered any clinical trials? Were there any at that time that could have helped Adrian? Any mention of that? Such a good question. Not at Children's Hospital. They really did not think outside the box. I asked about clinical trials and it was like, well, she's not 18, so we can't do that. I just didn't believe that. It was a restriction, of course, but I pushed back and I said, come on, guys, she's a young woman. She's taller than me. She's clearly (laughs) developed. We're past that point. So that was a challenge. When we got to UCLA, they had been looking and they found a clinical trial for her. It was a phase two trial with the dendritic cell therapy. And we had a wonderful person who was a friend and an expert in biology and worked in the cancer space. And she did not feel it would have any efficacy whatsoever. And it was at a phase two stage where they're testing for efficacy at that point. They know it's mm-hmm. safe, but they don't know if it will help. Then Adrian didn't want to do the trial because of the way it was designed. And this mm-hmm. is something I'm so passionate about now. The trial would have required her to be in the hospital from eight to five, Monday through Friday. That's a and lot. I think her response was something like, hell no. <laughs> okay. And it's her right. It's her choice. It was absolutely. And at that point, she had opted to go back to school. She loved school. She was an honor student and I had to fight the school district, but we made arrangements to get teachers aside from just me. And she wanted to do school every day. She didn't want to be in the hospital. In yeah. fact, she wanted to be in the hospital as little as possible. And, and to UCLA, to their credit, really honored that. They really did. They did everything possible to make sure that that she was not in the hospital and that we only came in when it was absolutely necessary. I'm glad that she was able to get back to doing something that she loved because at 15, that's a lot. It's a lot for anyone, but a teenager, that's a lot. Yeah, it was a lot. Andrea, as Adrian's caregiver, you went through a lot yourself in a short period of time. What were some of your biggest challenges? I felt like, especially at Children's Hospital, less so at UCLA, that there was so much resistance about me asking questions. And we even heard later from one of our favorite nurses that everyone loved her, Adrian, everyone loved her. Yes, that kid with the blue hair, they love her, but watch out for her sister. Oh, wow. (laughs) Because I asked too many questions and I kept a diary of everything. Now, mind you, when we came in for her second round of chemo, it was always until UCLA, it was inpatient at Children's. They came to me to ask me how much pain medication had been given during her first round of chemo, because during the summer of 2001, Children's Hospital was in the transition of going from actual paper medical records to electronic health records. They lost her file. Wow. Lost it. So I was getting these little looks every time I wrote in our little journal, yet when push came to shove, they actually needed that information. It was really critical for her second round of chemotherapy. But I remember one time a nurse, or maybe it was a doctor yelling at me for looking at her chart. What? It's my right. That's right. I, I can look at her chart. She can look at her chart as far as I'm concerned. So that I would say was one of the biggest challenges and just constantly feeling like I had to fight for what to me were basic rights. And then also just getting her transferred to UCLA. That took six weeks that we did not have at that time. And it was because Adrian was on the California version of Medicare called Medi-Cal. And there were a lot of restrictions and they were not going to approve the transfer. But again, UCLA, to their credit, made it work in such a way that the insurance finally said, yes, you can transfer her to UCLA. 
On top of everything else, were you the person who had to talk with their insurance company, keep them updated about what was going on? How did you manage all of that, Andrea? I think it helps that I'm obsessively organized. So that helped a lot. (laughs) Yeah. I had a three ring binder. I still have it. And I had dividers. And even with electronic health records now, I recommend to people, you need to print everything out. That's right. Because the beauty of that binder is that it went with Adrian wherever she went. And though I was there almost all the time, if I wasn't in the room, let's say at the hospital, or if a friend took her to a doctor's appointment or something where I wasn't there, the binder was with her. All you had to do was look at the binder. And and so that helped keep me organized and maybe just a little bit sane during that time. Andrea, your story really further sheds light on the fact that it's important to take your health into your own hands. Even though they have all these systems and charts and things, keep notes, write your questions down. That is so critical. And your story proves that even further because they had to come back to you. Yes. (laughs) The problem child. (laughs) I know, I was. The problem sister, problem parent. Yeah. 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 And I think that came from two places. I grew up around doctors and hospitals because our mother was a nurse. So I wasn't intimidated by doctors at all, but also it just came from a place of curiosity. Like I wanted to understand, like, why are we changing the protocol? Why, when she checked in two hours ago, this is what was going to happen. And now you're changing the orders and you didn't tell us. So I was constantly asking why, because I just wanted to understand so I could manage everything better. Yeah, I love that. So be curious about what's going on with your health as well and why they're doing what they're doing. Ask those questions. Can't go wrong. Thank you for sharing that, Andrea. What advice would you give to cancer patients and caregivers based on what you've experienced personally? Always get a second opinion and in many cases, get a third opinion. It's so critical and it's a lot easier now. I feel like today I know so many doctors that will do virtual second opinion visits and often not charge the patient because it is just a telehealth appointment. So always get a second opinion would be number one. And then number two would be if you or your loved one is diagnosed with an advanced stage of cancer, clinical trials should be a first option, not a last resort. Mm -hmm. And even in the medical community, clinical trials often feel like a last resort. They really do. I know so many people where clinical trials save their lives. Yeah. Save their lives. I know someone who was patient number one of a phase one trial (laughs) that saved his life, but the doctor didn't tell him about it. His brother and his friend found the trial for him. Yeah. That goes to show you that, again, you have to take things into your own hands. Don't go crazy on Google, but make sure you get the information that you need. And like you said, get those second and third opinions because everyone is not offered that information. It should be. They should be. But as you just said, clinical trials weren't even offered to a friend of yours. Yeah. He had to find it himself. His family did. So. You just have to take the initiative and find people who will advocate for you as well. Yeah. You really have to be a force of nature. You Mm -hmm. really have to stand up for the patient because the patient's focus needs to be on getting well and resting. And often the patient doesn't have the time or energy to really participate in those conversations. 
So the caregiver, whether it's a spouse or a friend or parent or sibling, it's the onus is on the caregiver often to take charge. That's true. Thank you, Andrea. How has your experience and Adrian's experience with cancer impacted your mental health? And were you able to get support to help you cope with the grief and loss of your sister, child, and best friend? Oh my gosh. What a great question. <laughs> uh, raising Adrian, I'm going to get emotional, but that's okay. It's okay. Raising Adrian was the best thing I've ever done in my life really, truly the best thing. And losing her was by far my greatest loss. And I did not feel like while she was undergoing treatment for cancer, there was no support. I'm sure there is now. I like to think there is, but you would think in children's hospital, there would be a parent support group. Yes, There wasn't. And I did go to a support group after she died, but ultimately stopped going because it just felt like I was treated a little differently because I wasn't her biological mother. I was going with my boyfriend who was very much a father figure to her. And he felt the same way. Adrian's death really tore us apart because I leaned into depression and sadness. That's how my grief expressed itself. With him, his grief was 100% anger and he started drinking heavily. And the relationship only lasted two more years. And even those two years was just a stretch. Yeah, it was really rough. Yeah. Sorry to hear that. Even today, people still struggle to find the support that they need when it comes to emotional support, mental health. I'm finding that those things are still not readily available or even made known to the patient and their families. Oh, I totally agree. And something I did do for myself a year after Adrian died, I was so suicidal. And, oh. and but I didn't have health insurance. And I didn't know what to do. So I actually entered a clinical trial. It was a phase four clinical trial where at that point they have the standard of care and they're just looking for deviations among a population typically. So they're not testing one drug against another. I went to this clinical trial because I felt like I needed to get on antidepressants at least for a period of time. And I wanted to be closely monitored and it was my best shot without having health insurance. So I was on this trial, I think it was for four months and I went every week. I even got a little stipend, which essentially covered gas, but it, it was really helpful for me because it got me on a path to, to getting more help. That's what it did. And I want to applaud you, Andrea, for thinking outside of the box and figuring out how to really, how to get that support that you needed. You're like, well, I don't have insurance, but I know I need help. And you found a way. So I just want to applaud you for that. Even after everything that you went through, that takes a lot of courage. Thank you. Yeah. I like to think my resourcefulness is one of my best qualities. Yeah. Andrea, how are you doing today? You seem like you're doing really well today. As I read your bio, I shared with the audience all the wonderful things that you're doing, and we're going to get to that in a second. But today, how are you handling Adrian's passing? The 20 year anniversary, which was a year ago, this time of year was very difficult. And I did not take the time to honor that, to appreciate it and to give myself a little bit of a break. And I tell your audience that because I know myself well enough that I needed some time. And I didn't take it. I felt a lot of external pressure from a lot of different things going on. And my health really unraveled this year because of it. So this time 
around the anniversary was much easier, but I have been working so actively in 2022 on my health in a number of ways. I just started working on my health because if I'm not healthy, then I can't do all these things that I want to be doing and that I enjoy doing. So I would say I'm in a good place right now at the time of this interview, (laughs) I'm in a good place, but man, you have to do the work. You have to do the work and the work is not easy. No. And the work is not done in a day or a month. The work spans years. It does. It really does. Yeah. It's active. It's constant, but I'm in a much better place than I was a year ago. I'm so happy to hear that, Andrea. We need you to stay healthy. Keep taking care of you. (laughs) Andrea, let's switch gears and talk about your nonprofit, Blue Fairy. It is named, as I mentioned earlier, in memory of your sister, Adrian. Please tell us what services Blue Fairy provides for liver cancer patients and their caregivers. Sure. So Blue Fairy's mission is to prevent, treat, and cure primary liver cancer, specifically hepatocellular carcinoma, through research, education, advocacy. So we do have an annual research award that we give out to doctors and researchers who are doing really innovative research in hepatocellular carcinoma that goes out every spring on my sister's birthday. We also have an award that is specifically for patients diagnosed with liver cancer. It's called the Adrian Wilson Spirit Award. And that's a rolling award. If we have the cash, we do it. And we actually just gave out another grant to a couple, the husband's battling HCC is what they call it for short. And his wife is his primary caregiver. And that award is, it's not just that you need to have that diagnosis. It's also, what are you doing to advocate for yourself and others? Because sharing those stories is so important. Then we, of course, have lots of patient education. All of those materials are free and we even ship worldwide for free, as long as we have a valid address that can be challenging in some countries, but, yeah, true. <laughs> but most of the time we get a valid address, not always. And, and then we have other advocacy programs. We have a newer program that we launched a few years ago called love your liver, which is a public awareness campaign that not only focuses on liver cancer, but liver disease that often leads to liver cancer. The thing about liver cancer is It is one of the deadliest cancers. It's the third most common cause of cancer deaths worldwide. It's on the rise. It's one of only a handful of cancers that's been on the rise in the U.S. in the last two decades. Yet, it's also one of the most preventable cancers. So that's why we launched this public awareness campaign. And we have several campaigns that go on throughout the year. Thank you for sharing that, Andrea. Let's talk about that prevention. What are some things that people can do? Specifically for liver cancer? Yes. So liver cancer is typically, and again, I'm talking about the most common type, hepatocellular carcinoma, is typically caused sort of three buckets. Very tiny percent of people, there are actually underlying genetic conditions. That is extremely rare, however. Another bucket is environment. So you can be exposed to toxins. Again, that's uncommon in the U.S. It is much more common, though, in other countries. For example, there's a fungus that has some connection to liver disease and cancer, and they're not quite sure you know, what that is, but it's not a fungus that we see here in the U.S. But the two main buckets are lifestyle choices 
and viruses. So in viruses, hepatitis B and hepatitis C can lead to primary liver cancer. And in fact, the doctors were so stunned by what they saw in my sister's biopsy. They were like, why is this 15-year-old Caucasian female who is otherwise totally healthy. Her blood work was actually good at that point. And she's never traveled outside the US. Why does she have primary liver cancer? They tested her for hip B and hip C and she had both. And we never knew it. We never knew it. And hepatitis B is caused by the transfer of bodily fluids. That's why you often see it not just in sexual activity, but it can be passed from mother to child during childbirth. It's called vertical transmission which is how they believe my sister got both viruses. And then hepatitis C has to be blood contact. It's rare. It's mother to child during childbirth. It's much more common with exchange of needles, IV drug use, or I know a nurse that just got a bad stab while working at the hospital, ended up with hepatitis C. The good news is hepatitis B has vaccination. Everyone should get it. Hepatitis C has all these curative drugs that didn't even exist eight years ago. So get tested get a test for hepatitis B and hepatitis C. It's a one-time test. It's a blood test. It's easy. You have to ask for it. And if you're an adult and you've never had the hepatitis B vaccine, that will really vary depending on your age, you should get it. That last bucket is much harder and way more challenging. And that's Mm -hmm. lifestyle choices. I think most of us, at least I did, the one thing I knew about liver cancer was alcoholism. And even though that's not necessarily the primary cause, of course, if you drink too much, your liver will suffer and you will be at higher risk for liver cancer, certainly for liver cirrhosis. The other big change that's really shifted in the US in just the last few years is before 2020, the most common cause of primary liver cancer was typically baby boomers who had hepatitis C that then damaged their liver, which turned into liver cancer. Now it is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or NASH, which is a subcategory of that essentially obesity. Yeah. I was going to say diet. Yes. Mm -hmm. Diet and exercise and obesity is linked to not just liver cancer, but a total of 13 types of cancer. But with liver cancer, there's almost a correlation because they can see when you have excess fat on your liver. Some doctors now just call it fatty liver disease for short. The good news is that's preventable. And then even if you have it, it's often reversible if you catch it early enough, but it really just comes back to diet and exercise. It really does. And as long as obesity continues to rise in the U.S. and many other countries, liver cancer isn't going anywhere. Yeah. Stay away from the processed foods, fast foods, try to eat a lot of fruits and vegetables and, you know, move your body, move your body. It doesn't have to be excessive. It really doesn't. Thank you, Andrea, for sharing that. Now let's talk a little bit about Cancer University. Please tell us what the organization does and what you hope to achieve. Cancer University, or as we like to call it, Cancer Cancer U, U. it's an online platform for patients and caregivers to educate, empower, and engage them to become advocates, like we talked about earlier, for themselves. And the goal is to improve outcomes. It's to lower stress and ultimately to reduce cost because the more active and engaged patients are in their care, costs typically drop. There's a lot of unnecessary stuff that happens in medicine. And that's where you have to become an advocate. But without that knowledge, you don't know how. And so really the goal with Cancer University is to make that cancer journey better and ultimately to save lives. There's just so many people that don't know, for example, what we talked about, that if you have an advanced cancer, you need to look at clinical trials. Yeah. 
So many people don't know to get a second opinion or they're afraid of hurting their doctor's feelings. So with Cancer You, we have this platform where we have a community, we have coaching, and we have courses. Wonderful. Thank you. Where can people learn more about Blue Fairy and Cancer You? Very easy. Just go to bluefairy.org and that's F-A-E-R-Y.org. And Cancer University is cancer.university. Thank you. Now let's talk more about your book, Better Off Bald. What motivated you to write the book? And what do you hope readers take away from reading the book? I always knew I was going to write a story about me and my sister. And I had even started writing little bits and pieces in my mid-20s. That's my background. I love to write. And I ended up writing a different story. I did not expect to write this story. But after she died, I knew I would one day. It took a long time and over many years and many drafts, but I knew I wanted to share her story. And the book covers the seven years of my life. I raised Adrian, but it is told through the lens of that 147-day cancer journey. I use flashbacks to really fill in the gaps, but the book takes place in present time. So you really feel like you're living the journey with us. That was my goal. I wanted people to fully understand what it's like and also to be inspired because my sister really had this bucket list. I wouldn't acknowledge it, but I saw what she was doing and she made this list of everything that she wanted to do. And she just started checking things off. And did them. She met her favorite rock star twice. Wow. I didn't have anything to do with that. That was her. It was really incredible to watch her. And those days where she felt good, the days where we knew her white blood cell counts were high enough that she was less prone to infection. We would go out and do things. So we had big things like meeting her favorite rock star, her make a wish day, going to the tonight show and meeting Jay Leno. And then we had smaller days where, Hey, there's this restaurant. We've always wanted to go to it. She has an appetite. Let's go. And so at least from the feedback I've seen in most reviews, people are really inspired and I'm happy, happy because she was a pretty inspirational kid. Thank you, Andrea, for sharing that, writing your book as well. That's what people need, hope and inspiration when they are going through something like cancer or anything tough in life. If you could say anything in the world to Adrienne today, what would you say to her? Raising you was the best part of my life. It's the best thing I've ever done in my life. I know it wasn't easy, but it was such a privilege to watch you grow up. Thank you. This is a great question. I know you're up to something, Andrea. What are you working on now? (laughs) Oh, so I'm in very early stages of working on my next book. And it's about my 30s when I was grieving the loss of my sister, when I started Blue Fairy, when I got married to a good guy, but not the right guy for me. And just all these choices I made that came from a place of grief. It's also about losing all of my friends. So in my first book, you'll see that I had this very tight circle of friends. The joke in our little circle was that your name had to start with a J or an A or you couldn't be accepted (laughs) because literally every person except one, their name started with J or A. It was hilarious. And I really debated whether to change that in the book. I changed their names, but I didn't change the J and A because it was just so funny. And I had this tight group of friends who weren't necessarily friends with each other, but they were always there. And they were very much like aunts and uncles to Adrian. I lost all those friends. And in some cases, I can't even tell you why. I have no idea why. There was only one friendship that I purposely ended that was in my best interest. And that was very hard to do 
but I didn't want to leave that friend hanging. It was a very tough conversation to have. There's so many books and things out there about breaking up in a romantic relationship. Mm -hmm. Breaking up a friendship is just as hard in some ways. So that conversation was hard with that friend, but I didn't want her left wondering why. So that's one of the challenges with this book is that I don't know the why with some people. Yeah. I have, I don't really know that first year after Adrian died, I did my best to let people know or tell them I was okay. And I wasn't okay. Mm -hmm. I wasn't okay at all. When I hit that year mark, I fell apart and some people didn't stick around. That's one thing about life and especially about cancer and any tough disease or illness that you're facing people that you expect to be there. Sometimes they drift away. They're not there. Yeah. And many people experience that. And, you know, that is another form of grief. Yeah, it is. Mm -hmm. I think that was something I'm still wrapping my head around too, is those people were there with Adrian. They mm -hmm. were there. Some of them started dropping off, but in the end, they actually, all of them said goodbye to her before she died. And yet after she was gone, that's when I started losing my friends. Yeah, that's not easy. So that's, that's the next book I'm working on just covers my 30s and grief and how I found myself in a marriage that wasn't the right marriage for me. Do you have a title for your book? I do. I'm not going to share it though. Okay. That's okay. We just have <laughs> to I wait. Do. We have to wait. Okay. Wonderful. Yeah, I have a title. Great. I look forward to that book as well, Andrea. Before we end, I'd like to ask my guests two questions. The first one is, what is something that people often misunderstand about you? Oh, that my directness and my bluntness is somehow an indication that I don't like you or that I'm just a rude person. So I have really learned to just cherish people who get me because I'm not afraid to call something out, especially professionally. And some people take that the wrong way. Other people really love it because they're the same. I love it because at least you know what the person is thinking. Also, that's a easier way to solve a problem or issue. Right? Just say it and talk about it and don't beat around the bush and play games. Just say what it is. And yeah. hopefully you have enough respect for each other to talk about it, figure it out how to fix it and move on. <laughs> Amen, man. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Andrea, the other question is, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be and why? One day I will get there. If this were a video, I would show you the background because I do have <laughs> it as a background. I want to end up one day in my old age in Gold Beach, Oregon. It's on the wow. Southern coast of Oregon. It's about five hours from Portland. It's an hour from the California border. That's how far South it is. It's this little bitty town. It's where the Rogue River meets the Pacific Ocean. It's just beautiful and quiet. And yet there's this very active literary community there. It's just beautiful. And I have been there during the worst time of year. So it does get about 90 inches of rain. Oh my goodness. <laughs> but most of that rain is in a three to four month period during the winter. And that's the one and only time I've been there. I'm still in love with the place. I need to go there in the summer when it's beautiful, but it's called the cool tropics because I think the hottest it ever gets in the summer is like 76 degrees or something. Oh, wow. The really beautiful, moderate weather, great wine is able to grow there because of the weather and the people. It's a very small community, but there's something about that water and the views and the quiet. So nice. that would be my place. It sounds peaceful. 
It is. <laughs> Thank you, Andrea, so much for sharing that with us. It has been a pleasure talking with you. I could talk to you all day. Thank you so much for sharing your story, for sharing Adrian's story and all your wisdom and also being vulnerable with us and just letting us know what it's really like to be a caregiver. And I appreciate you. Thank you. Oh, Talia, thank you so much for having me on. I'm honored. My pleasure. Before we end today, I would like to give a shout out to the listeners. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please share, follow, or subscribe so that you can easily find my podcast and listen again. That is it for this Wednesday. And until next time, let's keep navigating cancer together. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Navigating Cancer Together. I hope you enjoyed it. Please be sure to subscribe. And if you enjoyed the show, please share or tell your friends and family about it. For notes from the show and previous episodes, visit ontheotherside.life and check out the podcast section. I would love it if you joined us for the next episode. Talk to you soon.